This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome to episode 138 of What Most People Think. Uh, A couple of things straight out of the gate here is first up, Happy Easter. And secondly, I have held this recording back because of the statement uh, in the comments from Boris Johnson. And I I feel confident, I've listened to a bit of it, I feel confident that it's exactly the fucking same as it was last time he did these sort of statements. So unless Theresa May feels particularly like Wheatfield level naughty, and uh, calls for him to resign. I think that we're okay uh, to press on. And speaking of pressing on, I've got as a returning co-host, the brilliant Simon Evans. Welcome back to the show, mate. Thank you very much, Mr. Norcott. Lovely to do episode 138. I've had my eye on this one for a while. It is psychologically, <laughs> it is It is the important one. It's just, uh, there's some sort of cosmic significance to this one, I think. I don't know what it is. We're, we're we're like, we're live. Either our careers will both kick on or, or finally, you know, come to an end and we'll both be doing supply teaching within about a year. <laughs> it's a transferable skill, definitely. Um, you are, just for context, you are, because you've been out and about today, you've bought a new car and you're currently sitting in a car park in your new car. Bought a new car and I'm in McDonald's drive through car park. Here's the new car, there's the interior, which is mainly what I've been after and I wanted something with a Ooh. nice bit of wood. don't know if you can see that, but... Uh, don't know if I saw is yeah. that was that a, a walnut dash? I mean, this the demographic of this show does skew male, and obviously, yeah. <laughs> women women love cars too. But statistically, I think this will this will play to them. So let's let's just talk tail of the tape here. What what car have you got? I went. It's not uh, extraordinary. It's a BMW 520D, which a lot of my friends regards me as now having entered a class of male only describable with the most base vulgarities available, because they've <laughs> normally been you've had bad experiences at lights and in heavy traffic. Some BMW drivers do let the side down, but basically, I wanted reliability. Really, I'm not. I'm not looking yeah. for autobahn levels of boy racerhood it's a nice well-constructed vehicle but yes you're right it is the closest thing i wouldn't call it walnut but it's definitely looks like real wood um some of the bmw interiors just have that horrible sort of uh aluminium foil slightly texturized but still nevertheless you know you feel like you're being put into some sort of heavy duty catering equipment i don't like that I already know that we're going to get more letters just on what you said about cars. I'm not a car guy myself, but I already know we're going to get more letters about that one minute of car chat than anything else that we've had for weeks. So if Simon said anything accurate or, or, or flat, frankly slanderous there, it's what most people think, UK uh, at gmail.com. And, and look, mate, it's a nice motor. I can only presume that that, that GB news money is coming coming in coming in solid. It's actually a bit of a downgrade. The last time I bought a car was a Mercedes S-Class, and I thought, I really do need a really comfortable, classy car for doing the long motorway journeys in the wee hours of the morning, you know. And it turns out the S-Class is built for the people in the back seat. It turns out my kids got all the benefits of that, and uh, I was just the chauffeur. So I've I've downscaled a little bit, in truth. We See, it's really interesting. We are at the opposite ends of of sort of the the functionality of cars. I've currently got a Seat Ibiza, a 2015 Seat Ibiza, which I've... I've made the decision. I'm going to ride it all the way to the grave now. You know, yeah. you have a level of where you think, well, the trading value of this is now so low. Every year that I continue to ride this, I'm effectively, I see that as saving money. I just, I, I just I don't, I just, I just, I just, it's so weird because there, everyone has things that they will spend money on, you know, that they will put big money on. I'll spend, I'll spend money on nice hotels, but only when I'm with my family, not when I'm on my own. Uh, nice meals. I'll, I'll sometimes go flashier than my income really suggests or allows in some <laughs> cases. I agree with you, but I mean, there's a famous saying, isn't there? There's a famous saying you should spend money on beds and shoes because when you're not in one, you're the other, you know? But the <laughs> truth is, cars for a comedian, there's no other environment I spend as much time in. I don't spend as much time on my own sofa. I probably yeah. do just about spend as much time in my own bed, but that would be the only other 
comparable environment. You know, I spend an awful lot of time in there and certainly more time awake than I ever do in a hotel room. So, you know, I think this is one. It feels to me like no, no, it supports a good mental attitude, you know. It, that's a persuasive argument, really. And also what you'll have is when you do uh, your tour shows or your gigs, you, you won't have what I have. You'll, people will come out into the car park, car park and they'll see you getting in that motor and they'll think there's Simon Evans doing all right for himself. Whereas that's what right. happens with me is people come into the gig thinking, oh, Norcott's doing all right. And then they see my, me in my car and then they reassess. Well, they think, oh, I think it must be going worse than I thought because he's in a he's in a Ibiza, you know? And look... <laughs> It's no. It, I can see. I can see the disappointment. They're disappointed with me. They're disappointed for me. They're angry as well. I think on some level. I I'm bet some of them imagine better. you're playing some sort of psychological trick on them. But there is. I bet they think you know he's a man of the people. But in reality, he's driving that say at three miles up the road where he jumps out and gets and transfers to the Lambo. You know. Yeah. Well, I did. Well, I did actually make a, a strategic error. Was I went to see AFC Wimbledon at the weekend against Wickham, and uh, I, I sort of tweeted my photo, but it was quite transparently from the hospitality suite. So yeah. you know, of course, I get a lot of tweets saying you've changed. I mean, the truth of the matter is, and this is the truth, is that I tried to buy the cheap tickets earlier that week. I promised my son we'd go. I left it too late, and that was all that was available. So I was. I was pretty disappointed to be in hospitality, but you know, maybe maybe it's not the worst thing in the world. Maybe there is, like you say, it's like advertisers, aren't they? I mean, there's a brilliant book called Alchemy out at the moment, which I've been listening to, and he talks about one of the points of advertising is simply to have advertised. You know, to simply to say, I can, we can do this. You know, I can, we can be on ITV. So, so you know, maybe people look at me sitting with my prawn sandwich in the hospitality suite and go, maybe we should see his tour show. If, they, if he's able to go to a League One match and sit in an <laughs> air-conditioned room. I am not a big football fan, as you know, but every time I've ever been in hospitality suites at a football ground, it's because there's a corporate event going on there, which I've you know, been asked to entertain or whatever. I've never actually watched a match from them. But they feel to me like they'd be the worst place imaginable. Yeah. I would rather be in a, in a Weatherspoons watching it on a big screen to be honest, and in hospitality, you feel so utterly divorced from it all and surrounded by yeah. kind of mid-range coffee machines and stuff. It's an odd, I don't know, it just didn't... No, it does feel like know. at some point a guy's going to come in. You know those paper charts where people kind of like rip them off and like he's going to do some sort of Venn diagram about brand synergy yeah. and uh, and <laughs> post-rationalisation of stationary solutions... Just a quick question at the top of the show here, Simon. Um, I tweeted about this over the Easter holiday. Uh, Easter, better than Christmas. If the weather's good, Easter, better than Christmas. Because two days off, roast dinner with lamb, still a good roast dinner, still have chocolates. But most importantly, you don't have as much shit to do. There's just less in the way of expectations. I don't know if you're a religious man. or what. what you, is that a fair shout? Easter, better than Christmas? Well, I mean, yeah, put the Christian messaging aside, I suppose, for a moment. But... Um... <laughs> This is much less sense of occasion. I mean, I'm not even sure when Easter is quite often until it's Thursday. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you've got a proper job, you know, and I'm kind of going, and then I'm up in London on Monday. Oh, hang on, that's actually Easter Monday. You know, it's quite often just yeah. a clean bit. But, uh, yes, I agree with you. I don't really like Christmas lunch that much because turkey is extraordinarily difficult to get right, whereas, as you say, a nice lamb roast, which is exactly what yeah. I had yesterday um, at the Ram in Furl, which was wonderful. And... Um, and yeah, you can get out. I and mean, it's also, it was my daughter's 18th yesterday. So that's a, it was sort of like, obviously a bit more of that really than uh, than, mm. any, than anything to do with Christ and Calgary and so on. But in terms of, in terms of the sort of Christian legacy of it all, I do think Easter is more meaningful than, than Christmas and, mm. and probably represents something that you can get your head around, like, or chew on a little bit more yeah. than the birth of a when he was born. He yeah. hadn't achieved anything then, and he was just born. We, I mean, it's just there was no real, there's no real sense of whether he deliver on that promise of being the son of God. You know, he might have just pissed it away. I agree with you. Yeah, there used to be Easter weekend. Used to have at least three major Hollywood blockbusters on the telly as well. Hopefully, Robert Powell, Jesus of Nazareth, the greatest story mm. ever told, which was the one with John Wayne as the centurion, and famously uh, delivering his line with a bit more awe. He's standing at the at the cross, John Wayne, and uh, and there's a, a the clouds part, you know, or something. And the sun comes through, and John Brilliant. Wayne goes, "Truly, this man was the son of God." And the director sort of tapped <laughs> cut. Okay, John, can you do it again, but with a little bit more awe? And so John goes, "Okay, okay." 
Okay, so we have uh, since you last been on the cuss count no longer exists, mate. We've uh, we retired oh, that. Right. Romish Romish Ranganathan was the well, I mean, just re- ran away with it, ran away, shredded it, shredded it. He fucking shredded it. Um, <laughs> is what we have a new thing now, David. Uh, the domain talking point. We've got a super patron called David Domain, and uh, his his domain talking point. I mean, I'm labouring this. It's a really simple idea, really. Nice. I don't need to labour it. Uh, yeah. He said, "I'm pleased to hear that Simon Evans is making a return to your podcast." He says, "Lots of nice things that you do a superb job on headliners, where you get the balance of serious and funny right, always masterly." Uh, and intelligent. He says, um, I noticed you've taken a bit of flack and he just wants to know if there's been any sort of consequences for this uh, in the comedy um, industry. And I think that, I think it's worth, you know, just as we've got somebody on who's doing the sort of GB News uh, comedy shows, it is, I don't know if people won't be fully aware of the social media reaction, but it is so fucking bizarre that it seems to operate in this simultaneous world where they want to say, that it's irrelevant, you know, and no one watches it. But also they get really highly strung about about these shows, you know, first headliners which uh, you host and then there's a new panel show out. Just just talk us through what the kind of reactions have been like and, and the kind of things these idiots are saying. <laughs> you, you've, you've hit the, the nail on the head with the, with the strange kind of Schrodinger's reaction thing that, that on the one hand, GB News is, is not watched by anyone and it's, we're shouting into a, an empty bucket. Uh, and at the same time, we're in danger of under, undermining democracy itself and, and, yeah. <laughs> and you know, bringing the country to its knees. It, it, it's interesting in a way. It's a microcosm, as befits England. It's a microcosm of what's happening with the proposed takeover of Twitter, I think, by, um, mm. by Elon Musk, which is activating an awful lot of progressive and left-wing journalists, including the ones who work for another billionaire on the Washington Post, you know, and who's uh, going to crop up later in, in one of the other sort of um, formal yeah. sections of the show that I've got my eye on. But... Um, I wouldn't say it's had any uh, downsides at all in terms of bookings. It certainly hasn't affected my uh, live work or anything like that. I've, I've I've encountered one or two comedians who've asked me how I feel about it, and I've explained it to them. And I've also there was a, there was a Facebook chat about it, which uh, came out shortly after sort of headliners announced itself formally, which was at least two months after the show had started. And I sort of went in and clarified and took any questions. And I think by the end of it, everyone was like, "Yeah, okay, that makes sense." The truth of it is, as a show. And you probably know Andrew Doyle fairly well. In fact, I think the three of us have spoken together on a single on his podcast, didn't we, a while yeah, ago? Andrew is, is genuinely committed to creating balanced panels. Not every single evening is is like one left, one right, one in the middle. But over the course of a week, mm. I think there is more more successful balance than you will get on any BBC panel show. Genuinely, we have at least as many left wingers. Some left of centre, some hard left. There's one or two proper full-on libertarians on the, on the right, and and myself. I think of myself as a bit of an old buffer, you know. But you know, like me, quite a mellow sort of cricket club rather than golf club, you know. <laughs> but, um, but you know, there's a there's a range of opinions that get that get presented there, and I I really will defend it quite um, staunchly, you know, as a mm. show. The whole of the programming of GB News, there are some shows on there that I probably wouldn't tune into, but I honestly don't see them, any of them, even Farage's, you know, I mean, you take history with Farage's history, you can take the uh, exception to some of the um, to some of the things, he's, including the obvious one that he's been involved in in the past, but every time I've watched his programme, which is essentially a sort of pub-based scenario, you know, having a yeah. pint with Nigel or something, it's very genial. He doesn't try and provoke people into coming out as, you know, on any hard right agenda, he might be trying to slip into the conversation, and and others of them are, are, are absolute. I mean, there's a slight sense, I suppose, that it's um, it's maybe a bit like one of those American clubs that Pele and George Best maybe went to play for to, in the autumn of their career. You know, that would be the the half. <laughs> the, yeah, yeah, the you know. the, the NASL, the National yeah. American Soccer League. <laughs> <laughs> there's a few people who might have had their glory years and are just maybe just starting. John Walk, yeah, like boss. people like John Walk and. Uh... I mean, yeah. I, I think that you know, with with the show, it's uh, it does seem to me that one of the things that's annoyed them is that they they had their hobby horses about. 
you know, right-wing comedy or any comedy that could exist in a medium that they consider to be right-wing. And they've just been proved wrong about it. That's the thing that I think that they're most annoyed. Because if you look yeah. at the lineup of comics, like they're good comics, you know, people like yourself, Dominic Frisbee, uh, and then you get, you know, Diane Spencer, uh, Leo Curse. Leo and, and, is and it's fantastic just... on it. I mean, some of them are really, I think, coming to their own on it, you know. And it's been really interesting to see some of them really rise to the opportunity to speak off the cuff, you know, free will for an hour based on... Yeah. stories that you've only had a couple of hours to to prep yourself on it's an exciting opportunity i wish i'll be honest with you i wish it was a little bit earlier in the day it's a bit of a i mean that is the, the mate I, you know, i'll be honest living out in cambridge as i am you know that is yeah. one of the biggest from a personal level it's like god midweek you know it, it's a late it's a late record but i guess that does add perhaps you know in a way to the slight sort of illicit nature of the show and things happening and and, and evolving quickly because yeah. you know that brain that filters things at 10 p.m might not be so it's you know it's had a couple of moments where i suppose you know there was the clip where leo was talking about nazarene zahari ratcliffe and he made a joke yeah. about you know is is uh it is her surname iranian for ungrateful which was i guess leo's stock in trade he gets out on, on the front foot and then then that just, but I think as you rightly said, was these were these were not sentiments that would be that beyond the pale in wider British society. But no. I guess what happens though, and this is this is the thing where I'm always perhaps sometimes too careful, is the people that are lined up waiting to be proved right. All you need to do is give them a little bite on that fucking hook, and yeah, yeah. and they will chow down on it. That's always my fear. Yeah, no, they're absolutely right. They're always waiting for it. Victoria Cora Mitchell, who uh, tweeted it. And didn't want to say anything about, oh, it's outrageous. Because she knew that that would, she doesn't want to be portrayed as a, a sort of Mary Whitehouse. So she just said it was kind mm. of incompetent, bumbling racism. It's, you know, it's not racism. But the, the the conversation we had off the back of, as you say, I think that's well characterised. He came on the front foot, Leo, as he always does. But we had a chat about it. We had a chat about whether she should be grateful or whether, in fact, she had been released as a part of a geopolitical shift that meant Iranian oil was suddenly very much of a priority for us. You know, whether they were, whether mm. the government were really stumping up 400 million to secure her liberty or rather to sort of open up the possibility of, of uh, bringing down the fuel wheels a little bit. And um, and we discussed, you know, is it is it ridiculous to think that she, she has some dual loyalty? Has she been radicalised? All of these things were... All of these views were parodied, you know, very, very emphatically, really having been raised. So honestly, I think we probably raised and then and then cleared more points, more genuine talking points that are likely to be, you know, shared over the pub table or whatever, uh, than you would likely to get on Have I Got News For You or something, you know. And that's all, as I say, within a few hours of the news coming out as well. Well, I mean, she said, you know, she criticised it being incompetent racism. I mean, the last thing you want is competent racism that actually achieves, (laughs) (laughs) that actually rallies people to the cause. And speaking of kind of the subjects and the kind of subjects I'd imagine that you would um, take on on headliners, we're going to be reacting to the latest Partygate revelations, which is now the fact that I say that as as an off the peg phrase suggests how fucking long we've been speaking about this. Uh, We're going to be talking a bit uh, about Rwanda. We've got a few new patrons here this week that we've got to say hello to. As ever, Simon, we speculate on them purely based on their name. We've got Colin Phipps, and that's Phipps spelled P-H-I-P-P-S. I have I hate to say it, Colin. This is one of the darker ones I've done, but that that's got serial killer vibes, Colin Phipps. And I don't know if I'm thinking of Colin Stagg, who ultimately was proved not to be uh, a legitimate suspect. Colin Phipps, though, that's one of those ones. Yeah, like a lot. I mean, I'm probably yeah, probably like body count of six or seven, maybe in the mid seventies, perhaps. It's hard to say where I, I don't get anything phonetically from Phipps at all. Colin's a good no. name, good name for a cat, Colin. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, Phipps, it's weird, I can't place that. I don't know, it sounds a little bit like one of those whimsical names invented by H.G. Wells or George Orwell in his novels, you know, to be a bit of an everyman. At 8.33 yes. every morning, Mr. Phipps boarded the train to uh, Wincanton. Oh, see, Mr. Phipps is also yeah. a cat's name. You know, uh, you know right. one of those, you know, one of those women that's still single in her mid fifties and thinks she's eccentric, and or yeah. she, she's not as eccentric as she likes to make out. She's got a cat. Goes, this is Mr. Phipps. And if you're not, if you're not, if you're not impressed by the creativity of that, you can just see the life drain for her eyes. As she knows, she's got fuck all else in the in the closet. Really, that's that it. Very generous of women in that situation to have lots of cats because if you decide that you're is not working out, you can then make a very viable excuse about why you have to leave at this point. 
you know, to start <laughs> rubbing your eyes. I'm sorry, it's the cats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, won't just, ask just... you to choose between us. <laughs> Using using a pipette to squish some bleach into your eyes, going. I just look. If it was if it was just about you, I'd stay. But uh, <laughs> I've got a uh, Judge Jules. I think is a returning patron here. And there's always a problem with people getting kicked out. So if you do want to uh, still be part of uh, the Patreon community, there is a live show coming up this Thursday night. And uh, there's oh, there's all my my previous two tour shows there. Just a shitload of. Of stuff, but Judge Jules, I can't, it can't be the uh, trance DJ of the late eighties and early noughties who is still going. Uh, but welcome back, welcome back, Judge Jules. I mean, the thing about Judge Jules that people, a lot of people don't realise is it sounds really cool. But he was just a qualified lawyer, and his name was Julian, <laughs> which immediately <laughs> lose. <laughs> it's just a kind of semi-factual basis. And then we've got Nathalie, Natalie. Natalie, but with the H, right? Natalie Menace. I mean, Natalie Menace, and I don't want to sound creepy here, but you sound like, you know when, who's the hottest new actress on the block? Like one year's Megan Fox. Yeah, but they always have sexy names, don't they? Like, there's, I don't think that can be a coincidence with actresses, that they just know what name will make it sound like. Like if you, that that's a lot, that's a name that's carrying with it a lot of promise, isn't it? Natalie Menace. And I think it is just Natalie. That is just a way of spelling Natalie. But but oh. Menace is spelled as Menace, is it? As a, as Dennis. Uh, uh, well, I, I'm just I'm always wary of women of spelling out a name in full because there'll now be loads of blokes. I mean, it might uh, be Menachi, <laughs> Natalie Menachi, which is which will be quite cool as well. I think, and maybe cooler even. Could have wondered what somebody did in the, as, as a family called Menace. I don't know. That was never an occupation. Was there a town Menace? I mean, it would be, as you rightly say, it would be great if she had a brother called Dennis. But, <laughs> yeah, I just think it's really important to get your, your hot girl name right if you're going to be an actress. I've always thought, I've always imagined that any woman called Trudy must be really sexy. I, I don't know why that is. I don't know if I knew a Trudy Young, but it just sounds sounds Patrick. a bit... Yeah, it sounds a Isn't bit sassy. <laughs> Isn't that Sting's Mrs. Trudy? They, I, just, I mean, it's men are so basic. Probably when I was about eight, there was a girl in my class <laughs> called Trudy who was pretty, and I've never got over it. Okay, just before we go into the main subjects, as the guest, it is the guest's uh, privilege to do the thank you and the fuck you uh, for this oh, week. Yeah. So, what, what, what are you thinking, Simon? Well, I'm going to stick with the same thing I was I, I mentioned, which was the uh, the sort of spat over in America on um, just a, a sudden escalation in in. Um, in the fight for legitimacy as, uh, on social media, there is a woman, I'm going to make sure I get the name the right way around. I think it's Taylor Renz, Taylor Loren. Mm-hmm. And uh, she is, uh, uh, yeah, Taylor Loren. She's a Washington Post journalist who has been attempting to dox the woman who runs the uh, Libs of TikTok account. Do you know that account? Yes, I do know that, and I would recommend it to anybody. Very Libs of, of TikTok. I mean, it's just a good way of taking a certain kind of thermometer of, of the, you know, the social media environment in the US, in a way. Yeah, it's and all she does, honestly, is share content which these mostly uh, young, crazy, progressive libs have put on TikTok. Usually, videos of people with blue hair, you know, losing their shit over something. Trivial or, or whatever. <laughs> literally yeah. shaking, literally, yeah, yeah, literally shaking. shaking right now. So it's all that kind of crap. So all this account does is basically share that kind of content with people who might otherwise have to spend hours on TikTok to inform themselves about what's going on, you know. And, yeah. and they sometimes put in a snippy remark, but it's not, you know, there's no attempt to kind of fabricate or, or anything. And so the Washington Post have decided that this is basically um, more likely than less to see Donald Trump uh, enjoy a second term in a couple mm. of years' time. And they've come after this woman and exposed her to... Um, oh, really? Imagine some quite serious like, danger of, of physical uh, altercations. You know, you know what... So, do, so the, account was, the account was run anonymously. Yeah, exactly. Uh, a, li- a, a liberal publication have identified that it sort of ferments, I guess, a certain kind of... Uh, view yeah. of the left or or, or liberals and uh, wow so they've they've come after an anonymous runner of a i mean it's got several hundred thousand a, a woman um, as well let's let's emphasize on this occasion i don't think that's irrelevant yeah. and um yeah so taylor lorenz is the is the washington post journalist and there are screenshots of her doorstepping relatives and so on to ask what they think about her and that sort of stuff i mean it's quite mm. it's quite sinister and it's not unusual and, just i think the elon musk thing has actually kind of um sent the whole thing up the spiral a couple of turns, you know? 
Well, I mean, it is interesting with Elon Musk. So if people aren't keeping up, he's that he is uh, a trying to currently, I think he's already a 10% shareholder of Twitter and yep. he's trying to either buy the whole thing or have a majority on the board. And it was, it, I mean, the, the simple funniest thing about it is that people like left-wing and liberal people who not so long ago when Donald Trump got banned, their explanation was, well, it's a private company. They can do yeah, yeah. what they want. It's yeah, a private yeah. company. <laughs> I think, like, even in their worst fucking nightmares, did they think that that private company might be subject to an aggressive takeover by their worst... I mean, they love a bogeyman, don't they? You know, they just, they, they've got so many of them. And they, Elon Musk is... They probably don't even know why they hate him. I think that there are lots of legitimate reasons to find him objectionable. But you just get the impression sometimes that there's just a sort of list of people, and it happens on the right as well. Yeah. But they just they, they they think he's a t. They think that he. So there's been a lot of hyperbole around this, isn't there? It's gonna. It's literally gonna start World War Three. And I mean, he did. To be fair, he did. He posted a couple of tweets. He had a little poll. Do you think Twitter is committed to free speech in principle? He was cross, I believe. And I don't blame him for this, although I'm slightly surprised to know he knows them. But do you know, do you know the B, the... Um, uh, it's, it's a satirical American. It's a bit like the... the oh, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. I can't remember what there's something B. I can't remember what the, what the uh, little word is. But anyway, they are... Uh, they, they were Babylon B. So ba- they're an account B, that yeah. kind of tweets kind of comic, comical... Satirical yeah. headlines, the kind of thing that, that often is that close to the truth that it sometimes yeah, turns out to be exactly. the truth. And they started out being a Christian outfit and then they broadened out a little bit. But it is, you know, it's right wing anyway. And that some people will say with a certain amount of uh, legitimacy that they are, you know, that they endlessly bang on about identifying as a, a you know, attack helicopter and all that kind of stuff. But um, anyway, they, they are currently banned uh, from Twitter because they refuse to uh, delete a tweet in which um, they, it, it was something derogatory about the, the trans admiral who was a Time magazine's Woman of the Year, I think. Do you know that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Elon took that as his cue, apparently, and that's why he's coming for Twitter, because he thinks it's outrageous. <laughs> it would be the most extraordinarily trivial issue on which there could be a massive hinge event in the whole of... I mean, without... Exaggeration. It could be a decisive factor in 2024. Who runs Twitter? Could be. I think could it has. Be, yeah. I think the way that it banned the Hunter Biden laptop story and and suspended the New York Times, which is a totally legitimate newspaper, you know, not some kind of bright bar, yeah. bright thing rag, suspended their account, banned all accounts that talked about Hunter Biden's laptop in the run up to that uh, election in 2020. It was. Obviously, an extraordinarily biased uh, out, you know, a platform. It was not. It was not yeah. just a neutral, a town square talking place. So, if it swung back the other way in twenty twenty four, you can easily imagine that could be enough to do it. The uh, the thank you is uh, is another one though. Is a guy called Mark Anderson, I think his name is, who's an old um, tech billionaire. He's worth one point seven. He's not quite in Elon Musk territory. And people have been attacking him as well on the Washington Post for just following certain accounts that are considered to be hard right and problematic and mm. you know provocative and trolling and so on. He follows 20,000 Twitter accounts, and one of them, when I checked, is mine. So I'm absolutely <laughs> delighted to find that I'm in problematic company in the hands of one of the world's richest men. And uh, I can only hope this is like going to you know pan out nicely for me if I just say thank you on air. Well, this I mean, this is the, the thing, the comedian's mind. All you really think is, yeah. does he have a 21-year-old child that's recently got a celebration coming up and they're into comedy and, like, a bit of an anglophile? And basically, will they fly over a comic from the UK on yeah. a first-class travel and pay me 20 grand to tell some jokes? If people listening don't understand how comedians' minds work, we do have a soul and viewpoints, but how quickly... <laughs> that gets to the end product of that is fucking astonishing. I mean, it's never the the leaps. I mean, there's a thing, and I, I, correct me if I'm wrong here, but often comedians like it is making something out of tragedy. You know, I mean, that is part of the the fundamental point of comedy. And a lot of comedians, if they think of something terrible happening in their life, then they're maybe not even maybe their second or third thought will be, how could I monetize this? You know, what oh I mean? yeah, yeah. <laughs> I used to have a thing, and Kate used to say to me, well, my wife, I've come and I can't believe what's happened to X, Y, and Z. She goes, oh, well, it's five minutes for you, isn't it? And, and it was, that was her total attitude. Like, I've got no sympathy. You're going to get a great routine out of this. Yeah. I mean, five minutes, and let's just say, getting five minutes of good gear together isn't easy. So if that does take a loved one going a few years early, 
Five minutes. Five minutes is five minutes. Okay, uh, let's get on to talking about this week's first big subject. Okay, so Partygate, as I say, we held back uh, the record here, both me and Simon, because we wanted to see what big things were going to come out of uh, Boris's statement in the Commons. And what he did first up was he came out and he said sorry again. And uh, I thought this was, I don't know if this was shrewd or cynical, but what he did was quite quickly try to move on to talk about where he'd been, which was having a meeting with uh, a lot of uh, sort of premier world leaders, including Biden, etc., and he wanted to talk about the government's programme, partly because I guess he knows people are listening, right? And then um, Keir Starmer, I thought, put in a very good performance. He got up and he could see what um, Boris was trying to do and he wrestled it back to the principles. And I think it was it was a very good performance at the dispatch box. I don't know if it was that better or dissimilar to what he said before. And that was this is my problem with this, Simon. He's uh, Part of the reason, I was thinking about delaying again. I mean, obviously, you can't sit in a McDonald's car park your whole life. But then I thought, nah. do you know Do you know what? And Listen, while we're talking now, someone, there might have been revelations of a fucking animal sacrifice. Um, Boris might have done a Jack Nicholson style, you can't handle the truth. Yeah, I ordered those cheese and wine parties. Something mad might have happened. But I just thought, this isn't that dissimilar to the debate that's been had many, many times before on this subject. So I guess... My first question is, is is it weird that we're still talking about this? I mean, or, or talking about it to this degree? Well, I, I, I would have to say I think it is tactical, isn't it? I think it's been deliberately, it's not all strategic, I think it's been deliberately engineered that way. I think that he realises that's his best chance of escape, is to not fight against the ropes, but just to kind of sit quietly and, and hope mm. the ropes disintegrate with age. And I think there is a, there's a perfectly good chance that they will do that. I mean... There's obviously lots of different ways you can come at this. And on matters of principle, he is an extraordinary disappointment. I think most people knew yeah. that when he was elected. He was extraordinarily compromised. His character, his, his history of lying to people, of being sacked for it, of treating women badly. I mean, there's a whole catalogue of things that are wrong with him. I honestly don't think Partygate has surprised or even added to them significantly. It's just that it's happened on yeah. his watch, you know, on his during his actual premiership. But... The other calculation that the you know you have to get on board uh, a significant majority of Tories, and they are just purely as always exactly like you were saying about stand-up thinking. Is there a twenty grand birthday party in it for me? The Tories are just thinking what is most likely to lead us to winning the next election, holding on to the majority. Mm. You know, as my friend Sam Ashworth Hayes wrote this week in the Spectator, and I totally agree with him. There is no sense at all that the Tories have any kind of program they want to see through. I mean, to be fair, he no. was purely on let's get Brexit done. Now it's been done. They've taken virtually zero advantage of any of the potential upsides of it. You know, we've, we've experienced all the, you know, queues at Dover. There's been no attempt to extricate ourselves from whatever it might be, the Equalities Act or whatever that they had any issue with that might free up business and industry a bit. So there doesn't seem to be a programme at all beyond, I suppose, lending support, moral and, and financial to Ukraine and, um, and just hoping that, you know, Labour don't get in. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that it does seem to be the the last remaining persuasive uh, argument from the Tories is, well, do you want Labour in? The, the thing of the Labour is that they still don't really seem to represent anything. What what they do, what they are effectively, quite effectively representing right now, is that they just don't have any scandals lurking around them. And yeah. that's not necessarily enough to get a majority, is that, well, you know, we're not them. Or we're like them, but without the scandals. It, it, that's quite a, a, a dismal pitch, in a way. And, and elections tend to be won um, on some sort of message of hope and a programme. But like as you say, the Tories don't have that either. I mean, Labour obviously see this as the goose that keeps on laying the golden egg. But, you know, the next election is two years away. They, they can't surely just ride this all the way to then. Or, or is the strategy just to inflict as much collateral while this is a live subject? I would imagine so. I don't think you're, I think you're right. It, it is conceivable, though, that, they, that the Tories might try and get in a new leader in time for that next election. I mean, that could yeah. happen, but there doesn't really seem to be much appetite for that at the moment, does there? The most obvious candidate mm. at one time, not very long ago, was Rishi Sunak. There seemed to be a lot of briefing. Some people think most of the Partygate stuff came out of his office. I don't really claim to understand that, but people who do understand how these things go on felt that he was probably angling for that and very possibly with Dominic Cummings supporting him. But uh, I think the last couple of weeks have been absolutely disastrous for Sunak's leadership prospects. I think he's probably not even in the top five right now. 
Mm. Um, partly because um, you know his golden touch with the budget, with the actual kind of uh, program that he's he's responsible for and that he's associated with, has not been very impressive. But also, frankly, you know he was he was you know exposed as this. I mean, I'm sure people know it. I mean, it's, it's not, not concealed, but the whole kind of you know billionaire non-dom status thing is not what you want your your prime minister to enjoy, mm. is it? Sorry, I, I'm not saying it's not legitimate what she's done. But it's not a good look, you know, for somebody yeah. who might want to actually run the country that you're married to a woman who's wealthier than the Queen and doesn't pay any tax on that. That is not that's not good. And also he was completely, you know, starmered by the, you know, trans issues and all that kind of stuff as well. I mean, I don't know, he just doesn't come across like a leader for no, me. No, he... If there was anyone impressive enough to take over, I think they would have done so by now. I think, yeah, no, he he certainly fell apart. I think when it came to his wife's tax status, I suppose the, the look, I, I mean, in terms of his wealth, I'm, I don't necessarily buy into the idea that there's some sort of threshold, upper limit of threshold of personal wealth, whereby you can't be chancellor because you're so out of touch. I've seen plenty of politicians be fully in touch, but still think absolute shit, you know, and absolutely, yeah, yeah. absolutely no clue on, on how to govern. What I do find odd is just the sheer gumption, and this this is true of a lot of conservatives at the moment, was that he thought that this would just never transpire or come to light. That That's what I find so odd, that no one's ever gone... You, Chancellor, her non-domiciled. I yeah. mean, it just and you know the same same with Boris as well with the Partygate stuff. This is one of the for me. You know, there's the moral dimension to it, but I don't tend to get that personally judgmental about people. It's, it's more about competence and and the fact that that one that these things happen that they thought in the most backstabby job in the world. Yeah. politics that, that this wouldn't come out and then the second element would be in the way that they've fought or every stage in this well we can we can we can squash this or or this will be the end of it or it won't keep coming with whereas the truth is if they'd have come out and owned it before christmas right full disclosure full apology there'd be no sue gray right there'd be no police inquiry and it would have been put to bed before the end of the year, and they might well be recovering in the polls by now. That's what worries me in a way most, is that they're governing, and they seem to have no fucking clue as to how stuff is likely to play out. I think you have to recognise that Boris Johnson, this is very much his comfort zone, you know, wriggling out of, you know, that kind mm. of, it wasn't me, you know, the... the, the, the uh, dance hall song you know uh, shaggy if this is that's his whole mode isn't it it's kind of that's his he's lived his adult life like that and very probably yeah. adolescent life as well and and so he's got a certain set of tactics and strategies and i dare say there were probably people in his office who were saying you know mr, mr. boris i really think the best thing to do is to make a clean breast of it put yourself at the mercy of it. and mm. he was like i'm not going to do any of that no it's all you watch they will be confused and, and, yes, you know, yeah. I mean, the proof of the pudding, you know, we'll see where, where we're at in two years' time. Obviously, I think it is, you know, horrifically, tragically, poignantly true that the situation in Ukraine has helped him in that respect. But equally, I would have to say, I have been quite impressed with how he's handled it as well. I think yep, he's handled yep. it with a certain amount of, like, proper, you know, guts. He's, he's shown some backbone. And, um, and I think a lot of people who were previously felt that, all of the moral authority in, in this part of the world was vested in the EU and Britain were, were like sort of out on the naughty step, mm. probably having to reconsider their position on that a little bit. Well, I thought there was a certain duplicity in the responses to him going on a walkabout uh, in U in Ukraine. A lot of people going, well, look, was there really any risk there? Was it brave? Uh, <laughs> he would have added security. All right, all right, you get full assurance and yeah. you go on that walkabout, all right? You know, because, I mean, he still had to go and do it. And, yeah, he's probably lent into it for uh, uh, political reasons. But I suppose what I think about Boris is, is he potentially an old banger now that you keep throwing money at? And and, yeah. and, and, the mon and money is like the Tories' political capital or whatever it was that they had left. And they seem to have made a habit of this. I mean, Johnson did it with Cummins. He spent a lot of political capital there. You know, there were a lot of U-turns after positions um, where they said that they wouldn't U-turn on free school meals and so on. But the truth is, when I stop and think, right, I mean, we mentioned earlier about just keeping Labour out for its own sake. I mean, I do think that if Labour had been in during the pandemic, we would have been in a lot worse position. I do think that. I think that they would have... Um, We'd have been locked down sooner, harder, and longer. I don't think that they would have been as creative enough as as creative in the private sector in terms of securing vaccines. Uh, I don't think they'd necessarily have been as proactive militarily with with Ukraine. 
And it, it's weird because those are probably, you know, those are much bigger issues than whether or not he broke the rules. But if whether or not he broke the rules is relevant. Yeah. But it's really hard in the current climate to, to sort of give those things their a sort of proper weighting. I mean, the, I think it's objectively fair to say that those three things are way more important than whether or not he broke the rules. However, if he knowingly lied to Parliament, there's got to be some sort of red line, red card issue, right? Mm. Yeah, I mean, you're right. The big three things you named are obviously huge world events, whereas the the party gate thing is like the broken windows thing, isn't it? If you if you overlook yeah. it, if you overlook a little infraction like that, mm. lost the, you know you've lost the uh, the purity of the of the situation. You know, it's either complete um, uh, complete leg- you know uh, law abiding uh, um, parliament and and government, or or it falls apart very quickly. So, I mean, I don't exactly know what the answer is, but I totally agree with you that if Corbyn had been in charge, I don't think we would have had Kate Bingham or anyone like it. We probably, some people would say, wouldn't have had the crony capitalism that saw Matt Hancock's mm. mates, you know, being um, given billion-pound contracts to their front centre. You know, so maybe there's a little bit of um, uh, apples and oranges there. But I, I do think, on, on the whole, I am comfortable that we went into, uh, into you know, the whole furlough issue... Mm with a government that weren't just inclined to try and bring on socialism through the back door. This would be the obvious opportunity to kind of completely restructure the whole shape of the British economy, you know, and it could easily have been taken at that point. I, I, I would have been terrified, frankly, if if uh, Corbyn and Macdonald had been in charge of the economy at that point, when, when you mm. could almost have just, you know, you could have made such a hard left turn at that point and never come back from it. I mean, just 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 uh, at the end of this, it should be said that Nicola Sturgeon was also caught breaking her own rules, just as Scotland was coming out of mandatory mask wearing in yeah. in, certain, in certain indoor spaces. Uh, she was seen to have removed her mask when she thought the, uh, the the photographers were away and was patting a man on the head in a barber's. And uh, I, I can't get it out of my head that it's the guy from Benny Hill whenever I think of someone being <laughs> patted on the head. But I sort of felt uh, sorry for Nicola Sturgeon because, you know, both times she's broke the rules. That's the only time that she's ever done it. You know, how's her luck, Simon? That these are clear. I mean, she's never broken the rules at other times that we haven't found out about or been, you know, putting in fairly draconian measures for longer than was necessary in the population. She was just unlucky enough that the one time she broke the rules this year, there was a photographer there. I mean, God. This woman. I guess she's unlucky. I don't, I'm not inclined to blame her for that, you know. I don't like her. I don't like the SNP and I don't like the culture. There is a little bit of a dear leader culture in uh, among, you know, the in Scotland and I think it's very unhealthy. It's a much more polarised political landscape than than we have uh, south of that border, and um, I don't envy them it. But I mean, I, I say I don't like it, but I'm I'm not I'm not inclined to point the finger or, or wag it out of for that. It's a, it probably was an oversight. I thought it was a bit odd she was in a barber shop in the first place, one of the few last remaining all way or spaces where blokes can just be blokes. <laughs> she was probably there to shut it down. She was probably there because she she'd heard rumours of locker room banter and yeah. people ha- people <laughs> having fun. Yeah. And experimenting with with what opinions. A no, I mean, look, talking. <laughs> but I, but I, look, I, I agree with you that I, I think that we should be able to allow leaders the momentary transgressions. It's just that she's yeah. been so, so moralistic and so on her high horse about this, and yeah. kept these restrictions in because she's sort of. Uh, She's sort of calculated that this makes her look like... And one thing, she's enjoyed the extra powers that COVID gave her and that this, on a very simplistic level, makes her look like a caring leader. So if, you, if she hadn't have done those things, you go, well, fair enough, she's made a mistake. But for me, uh, I think I think she should resign. So I've just thrown in a really <laughs> a really extreme take there. Just in, in the unlikely event I do have any, any SNP listeners, I'm saying, look, the real story here... I mean, this is where you go full radio phone-in presenter. Look, the real story here is nothing to do with Boris Johnson, it's the arrogant Nicola Sturgeon who needs to leave Holyrood today. Um, just going to talk about Rwanda because just before the um, the debate in the Commons, uh, well Boris's statement, we had another statement from Priti Patel, which was about the plan to take uh, asylum seekers in the UK to be processed. Well, they say processed, but it does seem to be to be settled, resettled in Rwanda if they're successful. It's not a case of them, you know, coming back to the UK. And, and there were a lot of questions, but I mean, in the end, Pretty Patel just t- seemed to take refuge in just saying the same things uh, over and over, which is, you know, is probably safer ground for her. I mean, just on a personal level with the Rwanda plan, I mean, I've, I find, um, 
I'd look, it's difficult, isn't it? The optics of it don't feel nice, do they? It's not something that fills anyone's heart uh, with joy. But if you take away the emotions out of it, right, um, I think the real questions are is, is whether it will happen, whether it will be uh, very expensive, and whether it will have any meaningful effect on the two things it's supposed to address, right? One is to slow down the amount of, uh, of kind of channel crossings and to affect, you know, levels of British immigration. I just, if you take all the emotion out of it, I just don't feel like it's going to have an impact there. It just feels utterly symbolic. Well, I suppose, well, you've got to take them one at a time, I suppose. But just to take the last one first, I think if you were thinking about paying uh, people smugglers 10 grand to get you across the channel, and you had a reasonable expectation that upon arriving on Dover Beach, you would be immediately taken to uh, a depot and essentially be in a, mm. in a processing line that would end up in Rwanda. And the best you could hope for would be that you would be resettled in Rwanda. The worst you could hope for is that you would simply be returned to the country that they had established you'd come from in the first place. If you believe that to be true, then I think that would significantly disincentivize you paying the money to take the crossing. You know, these people aren't just jumping in a boat and going, well, I might as well have a go, you know. There's a there's a big elaborate infrastructure that's allowing them to get across there, and I think serious measures have to be taken to try and stop it because it has escalated dramatically over the last three years. And apart from anything else, you know, on a Tory government watch, on a Tory government that was elected specifically to deliver yeah. Brexit, which was at least partially because we were concerned that our borders had become ridiculously porous, and you know, it's mm. gone far worse. Uh, so you know, regardless of my own personal view, you can definitely see that that had to be addressed. That's what these people are. So they're just remainers trying to prove a point. All yeah. these people in the in the, <laughs> in these dinghies coming across, they're just remainers. They just got to let it go. I mean, just to, just to put a couple of numbers there on what you're talking about, the the cost of uh, housing asylum seekers in hotels in this country is five million pounds daily at the moment. So it feels like whoever was in power, you can't really just turn a blind eye to this. I think that the number of channel crossings this year is already up to 30,000. And one thing that did come across in the debate, and, you know, Yvette Cooper was her usual reasonably kind of competent self at the dispatch box, but he's just, and, and, and Pretty Patel alluded to this time and time and time again, but she did have a point, is the lack of any alternative. Because what, what um, they don't, when the left criticise these kind of plans, you know, and there's a lot of validity in what they're saying, is they don't ever seem to take a moral view on the, the, the kind of uh, the, the crossings themselves on the trade and the danger that goes with it. And they get into these discussions about safe passage. And, they, and there's something about the way that they safe pa- say safe passage is it feels to me like one of those modern left-wing incantations where I go, oh, I don't know if you know what you mean by that, like what that means in terms of volume or numbers or how the fuck any of that works. But you just know that when you say safe passage, because it feels like a nice thing to say, doesn't it? Safe passage. Tell me you the, your child, wouldn't it, as they're heading off on their French exchange trip or something? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wish you safe passage. Who doesn't wish people safe passage? But where? You know, we, we, we need processing centres. Where? How many? Because the truth is, once people get to the UK, it's almost 99.9% certain that they, will, they won't be taken home. You know, they will, yeah. they, will, they will stay here. So that's my issue, is you get caught between the Tories doing their usual thing of a sledgehammer, a crack and nut, right? Arguably. But then you also then we go, well, at least they're doing something. I just don't see any semblance of a plan. And, and I guess, sorry, I'm wanging on a lot here, so I'll, I'll shut up in a minute. But, you know, you could say, well, it's not for Labour to, to have a plan. But I think in this issue it is because they're so morally vehemently opposed to it. There comes a point where you have to say, well, what else should be happening? Well, the, the Labour panel, certainly, that you know, there's a, a, certainly a large contingent on the left for whom they, they will address the, the question that nobody else is asking, which is... You know, how do we make the refugees safe? You know, how do we how do we ensure that they arrive and are looked after well? I mean, they're, they're not asking themselves, how do we stop this happening? They're, mm. they're, they're seeing it from the point of view of how do we create uh, an environment in which people can come in and immediately be processed quickly and and found a house, a house and a, and a home and a job and, you know, and be integrated into society. Well, if, if, if that is your objective, then you're starting from a different premise because there's an awful lot of people who think that illegal immigration should be stopped, not, not that it should be made safer, you know. So you're starting from two very different premises and it's difficult for the left, even for the Yvette Cooper left. One, in terms of a plan, it reminds me a little bit of when the Tories... Do you remember the um, the spare bedroom tax, as it was eventually called? Yeah. Or, or I think the Tories wanted to call it what the spare bedroom levy... 
and Labour wanted to call it a bedroom tax. It was in the Miliband years when the only Labour tactic was to put the word tax on the end of things that yeah. people like. So granny tax, pasty tax, yeah. really nice bedroom tax. And um, and it was another one of those situations where you thought, well, there is a problem here. There's a limited number of council properties. There are people that are, you know, getting on in years that are sometimes living in four bedroom houses. So, so there is a problem. But, but the Labour argument always seemed to be, well, oh, that doesn't feel very nice. Well, fuck it, there's a lot of stuff in life that doesn't feel nice. But... It, sometimes that's where I always come down slightly on the conservative side of things is, is I'd rather take on a difficult task rather than just sort of live in a fantasy land where where you could just, well, let, like, as you say, well, let, let's just make the difficult thing. I mean, yeah. so it's like, it's essentially like modern policing, isn't it? Like, is this headlock comfortable for you? That's not really the question a copper should be asking. The, um, the the situation with the bedroom tax, I, th- I thought did think that was kind of despicable because the tax is something where where, where money you've earned legitimately by mm. other you know whatever means is taken away from you. All the Tory plans of that kind were in terms of mitigating like benefits, weren't they? They're, they're nobody's going to yeah. take anything away from you. And yes, people who were given the opportunity, they said you have to be given the opportunity to re- rehouse as something more appropriate to your current needs. But if you refuse to take it, then we will we will charge you a supplement. You know, and and that supplement could easily have been. Um, have paid for by taking in lodgers anyway. I, th- I, d- I thought it was perfectly legitimate, I've got to say. I, I, I do kind of think that, especially given how demographics are changing now and lots of people live in uh, in houses of multiple occupancy or, you know, they have a room mm. in a shared rented house and all that kind of thing. It is not, really is not, you know, uh, okay for somebody who's on, in council housing to have uh, to have spare rooms but that i mean i know you were giving that as an example but i did feel it was uh, it was well i mean that's how tourists lost control of the narrative on that one totally well i i think that you know is is it because it would be so controversial to have said it at the time but is this kind of like a, a tariff on how much time needs to elapse whereby we could admit that we thought that the bedroom tax was actually quite creative <laughs> <laughs> There's one, one criticism I've got for the government, though, is that the and the Pretty Patel ran this line out in the comments several times. Of stuff. you know, actually, I find it's quite offensive that we're saying that it's a bad thing to send people to Rwanda. Like Rwanda isn't a great country. I thought, mate, you're using it as a deterrent. Yeah. I don't think you get to play both sides of this, whereby you go, it's no. fucking great, it's awesome, and we're using it as a reason to not come <laughs> here in the fucking first place. I thought she she is an interesting performer on her feet. She she seems to have about three ideas that she just three plates that she'll spin for the entire time that she's talking, and there's none of those. There's never a plate going to be added. It's not going to fall on the floor. She's just going to spin those plates. Theresa May came out quite strongly against it, more strongly than she did against Partygate, as far as I can understand. She seems to think that the uh, the incentives are bad and they'll end up still people smuggling, but only women and children from now on, because it will only be uh, uh, young men that would be sent to Rwanda, and so the boats will instead be filled with... Uh, the, the business will fill with, with sort of families, which puts them more at risk. I don't know if that's true. But, uh, I mean, I think you're right about, about the uh, the nastiness of it. But I have to say, Rwanda does look kind of nice. I wouldn't mind retiring there, to mm. be honest. At this point, I thought I might set up a nice little colonial office out there. You know, I quite like that. <laughs> little white linen and pith helmets and uh, sit out on the veranda and, uh, and issue visas or something. Apparently, well, it has you- come on a great deal. I don't know. Well, it's like it's like if you live long enough, a lot of the places that were once considered no-go zones will, will become more benevolent. So, like Vietnam is a stag do destination. Yeah, Rwanda, Rwanda is now you know a potential. It's like the Costa del Sol. It could become like the Costa del Sol. Fantastic <laughs> mountain gorilla watching there. Apparently, I think it's the number one place for it. You what? Mark my words. The same British people that used to retire to Spain will shortly be getting on the Eurostar, be getting on the Eurostar, going to France, getting in dinghies. Coming back to England to be processed to get themselves out to Rwanda. Beautiful weather this time of year. Okay, uh, I've had you for a while, mate, but I would love to do just one letter with you as I think you excel with this kind of uh, uh, dilemma here. Pleasure. So this is uh, this is a letter from Dan in Tootin, and he says, I've recently bought an office for my garden. Uh, I, I told my wife that it would cost no more than five grand. It's now looking like 12 grand. Okay, so that's already an issue there. However, I recently stonewalled my wife's request for a new kitchen on the basis that it would be, quote, madness to spend 15 grand in the current climate. Should I hide the cost from her? If so, how? 
So first up, I think that his main point of his question is just, I think this man just wants advice for how to hide it. I don't, I think he's yeah, already, yeah. This, he I think the decision to hide the cost, to stick, he's probably got an Amex that she doesn't know about and there's going to be 12 grand on there. Have, have you have you gone down the road of these kind of like funky looking bubble offices that go in gardens? No, funny enough, I always think they look really nice cosmetically, but, uh, you know, Lee Mack, um, who uh, writes Not Going Out, apart from being a great stand-up, he, I used to be on the writing team for that, and it took place in his home office, and it yeah. was surprisingly uncomfortable, in fact, in one of those garden offices. It, it was very hard to get the climate right. There was always like a slightly musty smell, like you would just get in a potting <laughs> shed anyway, you know, that's like sort of hot air, like that greenhouse smell, you know. Yes, yeah, the dank air. But no, I'd rather actually either be sitting outside or not. You know, but um, if you need I'm, space, if you've got a house that's, you know, compromised and you need space to get away from the noise of the kids or whatever, it's totally legitimate to have something like that. I personally tend to take myself off to a sort of sequence of cafes and stuff. I've spent money on high-end noise-cancelling headphones, but that's nothing like that's orders of magnitude different from the well, grand for a shed. I think that the, the, the tricky thing here for him is that he's manipulated her a little bit, but he's done it successfully. So he's actually yeah. won the argument saying madness to spend 15 grand in the current climate. So he's actually used the cost of living crisis, triggered some sort of economic sense of peril in but her he mind. He's arguing, isn't he, that this is a, a workspace. So I assume he's kind of freelance or runs his own business or something. He's got to say to her, this is an investment, you know, because I'll be able to yeah. work harder. I'll be able to make more sales calls. I'll be more efficient, whatever. And so I will leave the house at 8 a.m. and I will come back in at 6 p.m. having com committed a full day's work, whereas you know what it's like if I'm in the house, I'm in and out of the but kitchen, that... get your feet, all of that sort of stuff. So hopefully, you know, the revenue will increase enough to cover it. And also, if it is a, a business expense, I presume he can claim that against tax, right, which you can't with a kitchen unless he's going to make cakes. <laughs> yeah, some sort of Etsy business. Yeah. I think that that does sound like the argument instinctively, as you were saying it, of, you know, when kids want to get a dog, and he's yeah. saying, I'll go, I'll get up at eight, I'll be in there yeah. till six. I, I promise I'll use this. This will be the best this office uh, <laughs> ever. I, I think that one question, you know, as we talk about what most people think that might be controversial in another, what, what, what's the deal with women in new kitchens? I mean, come on. What they, it's just how, I mean, like, they, if you, here's my theory, and th this is as a man who's currently having a new kitchen in, and it's taken a while. Uh, uh, you he's, could have had a decent car. I could have had a decent office, you know. I could have had, I could have had three offices if I was going to use his creative math <laughs> accounting. I used to. I suppose the question is: there is a line where women want new kitchens, right? So obviously, kitchens have to replace sometimes, and probably men, if not prompted, might have the same kitchen for the rest of their life. So whatever, whatever, whatever house they bought into, whatever as long as it wasn't falling off the wall, do you know what I mean? Or it wasn't kind of like woodworm or insects crawling out of it. So maybe like there, there is that's part of the beauty of the male female transaction is is finding the right point for a new kitchen. It epitomizes in some ways the essential compromise between us. Yeah. But how many years is 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 it fair? Would you say you're you're very good in these sort of issues? What what would you say is a well, fair number we've been of in years? Our house twelve years. We installed a new kitchen when we came in. That was absolutely necessary. There was no question about that, and um, and it's still fine. But Kate did use the word tired to describe well, it recently, which is always a bit of a red flag, isn't it? It's looking a bit tired. I'm like, everything works, doesn't it? The door's open, you know. <laughs> but um, there are certain parts of it that I've always found ergonomically annoying. I, I'll be honest with you, she, she works as hard as I do, earns nearly as much as I do, and manages to cook most of the meals as well. If she did decide yeah. she wanted a new kitchen, I would be utterly defenceless. But I don't think it's where she likes to spend the money either. She'd rather have a holiday, to be honest, which is, I think, a much more sensible approach. But also, you're in a compromised position now because you're sitting there in a spanking new motor as, as yeah, well. Yeah. There yeah. you go. You know, and you've made you've made your dog walking argument about, babe, I spend more time in this car <laughs> than I do. And and of course, there is always the danger that when she sort of says that the kitchen looks tired, that she could then expand that metaphor for other things. Whereas if you can lock down, it's like a fire, isn't it, in a yeah. relationship? If it can just be the kitchen that's tired, and you can address that, she yeah. might just start looking at other things that don't work as well as this. Oh, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, you, some of your stuff really is uh, could do with uh, do with freshening up. Some, some some of your hinges are aren't quite as loose as. <laughs> I said she'd have a totally legitimate case there. To be honest, looking at me, a lot of my hinges are not what they were when we got married. That is a perfectly <laughs> fair. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> well, listen, I, I think that what we've got out of that is that is that this guy, they, there's no way of hiding it, mate. You know, you're married to a woman. They will always work it out, right? Yeah. They will always work it out. Something, something, it might be years down the line. So just come clean and, and set like quite a, a conservative time frame for a new kitchen so, say two to three years two sounds you know, I close would enough say also if, i mean i don't know what he's got of course and what his budget is but if you were to just say listen how about an induction hob you know maybe new surfaces something like that you don't need to go for everything but something that's got a little bit of cachet do you know what i mean that does sound like a, an established sort of, sort of psychological principle. The yeah. the induction Hobbes compromise, <laughs> recognised by psychologists. Induction I mean, even Hobbes. as you even as you said that to me, I was like, okay, I'm ready to come to the table. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, listen, Simon, thank you so much. Obviously, people should be watching uh, Headliners, which is on most nights at about midnight, is it, on GB News? 11 till midnight every single night of the week. I only do it a couple of nights, but it's worth watching every other night as well. Yeah, Mark Dolan cool. and Dominic Frisbee mostly host the other three and two. And are you are you touring at the moment? Is there any anything yeah. I should be directing people to? Yeah, if they go to my website, it's just called thesimonevans.com and uh, the tour dates are on there. There's only a few more before summer. I am going up to Edinburgh for a couple of weeks with a brand new show, which is not what I'm touring, which cool. is going to be a little bit more like my Radio 4 stuff. It's going to be sort of philosophy and politics as we used to do with economics. And then I've got a Patreon if people want to dip into that as well. There's a load of stuff on that now. But God, book length uh, amounts of text and um, essays and reviews and things of that kind that I've, I've posted over the last couple of years. And um, and then obviously my Twitter account, which is also the Simon Evans. If they follow that, then they'll soon get up to speed with all the rest of it. Yeah, there you go. So always do those things. Do I mean is the Edinburgh tickets on sale already? Because I know a few I believe of them they are. Gone. Yeah, I'm at the well, they're like, get... 14th to the 28th, something like that. And um, it's about a seven o'clock show, and um, it's not written yet, but I think it's going to be interesting and possibly provocative. <laughs> Well, there you go. I would recommend people to check out all of that. And at the very least, you know, give it a follow on social media, but get involved with the Patreon, uh, get the tickets for the current tour, go to uh, see Simon uh, in Edinburgh. And Simon Evans, thank you very much for coming back on What Most People Think. Absolute pleasure, Jeff. Take care. Okay, we'll have a new episode next week. Enjoy the rest of your week. What most people think.